Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us as we read these scriptures together. Bring your understanding and reveal your truth. Let us open our minds, hearts, and souls to all that these words of life offer us. We long to be continually challenged, transformed, and renewed by your word. May we hear your voice of life as we read and draw close to you. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is different than what's in the bulletin. Uh, we are going to read first from Acts 7, verses 54 through the end of the chapter. And unfortunately, this, this is much smaller than my printed out uh, words here, so bear with me. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. So meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and he asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bound them to Jerusalem. As he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The word of the God for the people of God. All right. This is not a drill. This is not a simulation. You're not in a dream right now. This is not an illusion. I'm Matt. I'm 20 years old. I'm going to give the sermon today. You know how Josh said earlier that you were lucky today because he wasn't a professional musician, so he had some good news? Well, I have some good news. I'm not a professional minister. <laughs> so in, you're in really safe hands today. You're going to be just fine. Let me start it off uh, with a question. How many of you have ever been so good at something, so, so great, so effective, you paid consequences for being so good at what you were good at. Does that, does that question kind of make sense? Let me give you an example. Maybe yeah, somebody back there is raising their hand really high. Yep, there you go. Uh, yep, you're good. Yep, there you go. T take this example right here. Um, you've been working for a company for several years, decades. You are great at your job. You show up on time. You do all of your work at a high rate of efficiency. Um, your coworkers love you and they appreciate uh, what you do at your job. So one day, your boss comes in and says, um, Billy, 
You're so good at your job. You're so great at what you do. You are so effective that I have a plan. Why don't we send you, the person who's good at their job, to go work with and train other people who aren't as effective, who aren't as good at their job, and who, to be quite honest, are just terrible employees. Or, you know what, Billy? You've been working at this company for 40 years, so you know what we want to do for you? We want to give you a special opportunity to train the college students who've just graduated and are coming into the company. You get to work with them now. How wonderful. Another way you could think of paying, uh, having to have consequences for being good at something is think about professional athletes. You know, the guys that are just incredible at their sport. They are highly effective at what they do. They have Hall of Fame careers and they're able to play into their 30s and 40s and maybe even beyond. But later in life, after they retire, their bodies break down prematurely. The shoulders are sore, the knees are hurt, the neck can't move too far to the right or else something's going to pop because they were really good at what they did. But now that the career is over, they're paying consequences for being so good at what they were good at. Jesus was really good at his job. He was great at teaching and preaching. He was awesome at performing miracles, at healing people. He was so good at his job that Caiaphas and his crew decided, hey Jesus, we're going to give you a crown of thorns and we're going to nail you to a cross. Stephen, the guy that um, Tom just read about, the one who was stoned to death, he was really good at his job. He was so good at defending the Christian faith, at, at evangelizing, at leadership, that they decided, Stephen, the Jewish authorities at the time decided, Stephen, you are so great at your job, we've got to put a stop to you. We're going to stone you to death. Something very weird with the Bible. It seems like if you're good at anything in the Bible, you're immediately promoted to death status. You know what I'm saying there? It's just odd. Think about this for a second. Ooh, I need to get my phone. Okay. There was a guy once in 2004, a long, long time ago. His name is Christopher Booker. Christopher Booker, I think he was a, a journalist or something along those lines. And Christopher Booker wrote, similar to his name, Christopher Booker wrote a book. And I'm going to get this on here. Great. All right. The book that Christopher Booker wrote detailed um, something quite interesting. What he was trying to explain was that all stories, all movies, all plays, all books that we read, all stories follow about nine basic plots. You want to know the nine basic plots? Plot number one, overcoming the monster. Plot number two, rags to riches. Plot number three, the quest, so the journey. Plot number four, voyage and return. Plot number five, comedy. Plot number six, tragedy. Plot number seven, rebirth. Number eight, mystery. And number nine, rebellion. I love reading the Gospels because if you read the Gospels, it's like they kind of meshed a lot of those genres together, right? I mean, we see um, a little voyage and return with Jesus coming into the world, but eventually returning to his father. We see him trying to overcome the monster that is sin 
and death. We see him kind of lead a rebellion against the religious system at that time. But, and, and I'm, a, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I think that the most important storyline that the Gospels follow is the storyline of the quest, the journey, the mission. Because Jesus, that's what he's doing. Jesus is on a quest. He is going to come into the earth. He is going to lead a ministry for three years. He is going to teach people. He is going to mentor uh, 12 men. He is going to bring his message out into the world. And then he's going to die on a cross for our sins. He's going to die our death. But then three days later, he is going to rise again. He's on a quest. He's trying to get something accomplished with his life. He's trying to do something of significance and importance in his life. Are you right now trying to do something of significance and importance in your life? Ask yourself that question, really. And think about this idea of going on a quest because a quest isn't an easy journey to go on. There's a lot of adversities. There's a lot of setbacks. There's a lot of failures. There's a lot of try fail try again fail try again maybe we're going in the right direction now it's complicated you know i just today we're going to talk about call about what god's calling in our life is and you would think that something like calling and purpose and and going out to go on a quest to find meaning in your life and to figure out why you're on this earth would lead you to happiness would lead you to to something that was totally fulfilling but when we look at Jesus, well, he tries to do that, and he dies a brutal death. Stephen tries to do the same thing, and he's stoned. And then the other guy that we talked about, Saul, you know, who would eventually become Paul, he got his head chopped off. Mm. So, let me phrase it like this. Every great story that follows the idea of a quest is trying to get the main character to answer this one question. What is my purpose in life? Why am I here on this earth? We, as Christians, believe that we are in a story. We, as 21st century Christians, we don't believe that the Bible is the end. We believe that Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is still at work in our lives. God is still trying to tell his great story. But it's complicated. So today we're going to talk about call. I was going through this sort of sermon in my mind and trying to figure out what I needed to do and what I need to say, and I realized that it's really difficult to talk about something like calling and purpose in life. I wish I could go through every single person in this room and go, you're meant to do this, you're meant to do that, this is what you're supposed to do, go out there and do it. But I can't. Because I'm not you. And, and I trust that God has a purpose for your life and that he wants to do something great for you, but I can't tell you what it is because I'm not God. And as much as I would like to tell all of you that God has a calling in your life and that because he has a calling in your life, you are going to succeed. You are going to prosper. You are going to live this rich existence. I know that's not true either because in the Bible we see people saying, God, have your way with my life. I, I accept your calling and yet... They go through so much hardship and suffering. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to break it down really simple into three forms. I'm going to basically talk about how we as Christians should address the idea 
that we are called by God. All right? Three basic ways. The first one is for the younger people in the crowd. The second point is more for the, the mature part of the crowd. And then the third one is going to be for all of us who are in the crowd uh, this morning. Point number one is this. If you are a young person, and I need to be really careful because I feel like I'm about to step into really deep water, so work with me here. Listen. Um, we live in a highly individualistic culture. Um, we want to believe that we own our lives, that I'm in control, that I'm the one who's doing everything, and I'm the one that, that decides my destiny. Think again, <laughs> because the first point is this. You don't own your story, and you don't really own your life. Not entirely. Let me give a, a good example of this. Think about something like marriage, right? Um, Josh. When Josh and Jennifer got married, I'm sure Josh sat Jennifer down and said, Jennifer, my name is Josh. Um, I am a human being. I have had experiences up to this point. I've had, um, I've had a life story um, that's brought me here. And I trust that you are Jennifer, another human being, and that you have life experiences and that you have a story that you've brought up to this point. And Jennifer probably said, yes, I am a human being. Yes, my name is Jennifer. And yes, I have life experiences that I'm bringing up to this point with you. And then Jennifer might have said something like, and Josh, I acknowledge that you have flaws. And I acknowledge that I have flaws. And I acknowledge that uh, I have strengths and that you have strengths. And somewhere along this conversation, maybe it was in a coffee shop or, I don't know, somewhere along the road, Josh and Jennifer said, I tell you what, let's take all of our life experiences, let's take all of our, the good side and the bad side of us, and let's merge our stories together. Let's become one. Let's become the Lemonses. Is that the correct? And that's exactly how it happened, right? Like, down to the T, <laughs> right? That's what happens in marriage, though. I mean, seriously, you look at that person and you say, you have your experiences, I have mine. You have your strengths and weaknesses, I have mine. I have things that I'm ashamed of. You have things that you're probably ashamed of. I have things that I like to boast about and things that are good about me, and you probably have the same. The thing that happens there is the same way that God enters relationship with us. Okay, marriage is not a, a cattle auction. You don't sell yourself away. What you do is you... You merge the two stories together. You allow both of your stories to become one. You, you surrender is what you do. You surrender to the love of the other person. That's how it works. Your life really is no longer your own. Your life is yours and the wants and needs of the other person. We can also see this kind of idea of our lives are not our own in our families, right? I always joke around and say, I'm a Mooneyham before I'm a Matt, because it's true. I, I grew up in a, in a small town of about 3,000 people. Most people knew me, but the people that didn't know me, do you know how they addressed me? You're Mike's boy. You have to be Mike's boy. You look just like him, or you're Tim's son, right? This idea that before I'm an individual, before I'm just myself, 
I'm really a part of my family first. This point is beautifully illustrated in a movie that came out probably a little over 25 years ago, and it's coming out again next month because Disney has run out of ideas, so they've decided to take all the cartoons and turn them into live action. And if Jake would please roll the clip from The Lion King. Pretty good illustration of the fact that we're kind of always under the shadow of our moms and dads and of our family. And the kind of experience that you just saw Simba have is quite similar to the one that Saul has on the road to Damascus. I mean, Saul literally encounters a supernatural entity coming into the material universe. And Jesus asks him, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what Jesus does is he tells him, and, and let's, let's get some context here. Saul, at this point, has not been a good man. Okay? Saul is, is very much a Simba, if that makes any sense. You know how Simba decided that he was going to uh, because of his father's death, ignore all of his responsibilities and then go out somewhere else and sing a kuna matata for like 20 years. Yeah. Uh, Saul um, has a similar character arc, except it's a little bit more violent. Saul is in opposition to the Christian faith. He's an, op he, he's an enemy of Jesus. And Saul bullies Christians. He has Christians locked up in jail unjustly. Saul even murders Christians. But Jesus still comes down and says, Saul, you are still a part of my story. You can change. You can do something different. What happened to Saul is he was blinded for three days, but when he saw the light again, he gave his life to God. He devoted himself to prayer and fasting. He decided that everywhere he went, he was going to give the good news of Jesus and talk about what he had done in his life. Saul wrote almost uh, 13 books of the Bible, am I correct? And these are the books that set up the early church, and, and we still reference these books today. Think about that for a second. If Jesus can do that for somebody who was literally the definition of his enemy, think about what he could do for you. Think about the way in which you could come into his story if you're a younger person. And then if we, we kind of go back to Simba and that idea of Mufasa coming down and saying, Simba, you're my son. And the one true king, he says, you have forgotten me. And therefore you have forgotten who you are. He's saying, son, whether you like it or not, our stories are tied together. We're, we're not on separate fields. You are my son and I am your father. Same thing, it's the same exact way that, that Jesus treated Saul. He said, whether you like it or not, you are a part of my story. And he brought him into it. As a young person, because I'm talking to the young people here, I have this real drive to sort of want to be my own man. I'm sure some of you, when you were younger, you wanted to feel that way, right? You wanted to get away from the shadow of your parents. You wanted to get away from your last name, and you just wanted to be yourself. But... I mean, you think about it, that's not really how life works, right? Last week, I went to Houston to go give a sermon at the conference chapel. And as some of you know, I've been mentored these past three years by a guy named Richard Hyduk. He's the pastor in my hometown. He's followed me through this entire journey. And I got done with my sermon. And somebody came up to me and they said, You know what, kid? I can see so much of Richard Hyduk 
in you. It was the biggest compliment he could have given me because I love the man. I, 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 want, I, I aspire to be like him when I grow up. He didn't say, oh, your sermon was so great and your content was so great and what you did was so wonderful. He said, no, you sound just like Richard Haidu. That's good for me. My life, the reason I'm up here, isn't because I decided to be my own man. These two stories, this kind of Simba and Saul, you know, type uh, uh, character arcs, these aren't triumphs of the individual's will and, and the individual's power to overcome all circumstances. No. This is an individual succumbing to the power of something greater than themselves, of merging two stories together. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. I don't want to be my own man because at the end of the day, you know what? I, I, I'll never be. I am a product of my parents. I'm a product of, my, of all my family. I'm a product of those who've mentored me and people who've taught me and people who've been in my friendships. I have been graciously merged into the stories of so many others. So if you're a young person out there and you want to follow God's calling for your life, understand this, you have to surrender to God's will for your life. Okay, the second point that I'm going to make is for some of the older folk, mature, we went with mature folk in the crowd, and that is as life changes, your calling will change. We have another video clip that I think will perfectly illustrate this. This is from a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. It's not as mainstream as The Lion King. It's one of those elitist hipster films, but it's only going to be a minute 45 seconds. Can you roll the clip, Jake? Isn't that interesting there? So this young woman, she probably has gone through undergraduate and she's going to pursue a degree in law. And because of the power of her essay, she's able to get into Harvard Law, probably the most prestigious law school in America. And within her first semester, she realizes that ah, maybe the way that she is going to impact the world, the way she's going to follow her purpose in life is not through uh, seeking justice, um, but through baking cookies. College has kind of a weird way of doing this type of thing to you. I've learned in the past two years. I feel sometimes like I have to take 10 steps in the wrong direction just to take one step in the right direction, maybe, maybe not. My mom kind of has a bit of a similar story here in the fact that she wanted to do one thing and then she wound up doing another and then she tried that thing out and then she was led somewhere else. My mom married my father in 1980 at the age of 18 years old. And she went to school and she completed a degree in accounting. And she felt like what God was calling her to do at that time was to be a certified public accountant because she was good in math. She was, she's incredibly smart with numbers. And throughout the 80s and into the early 90s, she followed this path of being a CPA. And like most people who are probably in that profession, well, no offense if you're an accountant, but she said after 10 years, I wasn't too happy being an accountant anymore. And I realized I wanted to do something else. Uh, she had been career-oriented the whole time. She had been pursuing uh, to have a successful career in accounting, but then she said, one day I realized I, I didn't want to be an accountant anymore, and I didn't want to be so career-driven. I wanted to have children. I wanted to, to, to have a job that I didn't have to work so many hours. And she said, I always wanted to teach kids because I have a passion for teaching. I have a passion for kids. So she went, and she got her teaching certificate, and she started teaching junior high special ed and math. And after a couple years, she decided that maybe God was calling her somewhere else. 
So she decided, I'm going to try to rise up the ranks in education. And so she wanted to become an administrator. She wanted to become a principal. So when me and my brother, my twin brother, were about four years old, my mom was working her full-time job, taking care of three children, and getting her master's degree. And she completed it. And she had tried to pursue jobs in, in administration in junior highs and elementary schools, but it didn't work out. And then about 2008, my dad got really sick and he couldn't work anymore. And then my mom realized that looking around at the need that her family had, she couldn't stick to teaching anymore. And she couldn't get a job in administration in an elementary or junior high. So what she did was she changed. She wound up working for a prison. She now works for the Boyd unit uh, out in SIG, Texas. She is an administrator now, but for a prison school unit. And I'll say this, she wasn't too happy about it at first. There was kind of a moment of anger, of doubt, but I talked to her a couple of years ago and I told her, I said, Mom, are you happy with what you're doing? And she said, Matt, I'm overjoyed. It took me a while to figure out and I had to do a lot of praying, but you know what? I feel like this is what God wants me to do in my life. To speak into these men who've made these bad decisions, who've made these mistakes, and to try to get them on a better path. This idea of as your life changes, you know, your calling will change is perfectly demonstrated in... I have this Bible verse on my phone. Let me do this real quick. And what Jesus says to Peter uh, when they're eating breakfast on the shore, anybody remember that scene? He said, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you clothed yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will clothe you and carry you where you do not wish. Then he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. What Jesus is saying there is, you know, at one point in your life, you're going to be your own person and you'll clothe yourself and you'll go where you need to go, but eventually somebody else is going to make those decisions for you. Anybody kind of feel like that sometimes? You know, as you become a, a spouse or become a parent, you feel like, well, you know what? Um, my life isn't as much my own anymore. It's predicated on the needs and wants of others. So as we, as we grow through life, what we're being called to do changes. Right now, I'm called to be the student. I'm called to be the intern. But in the future, I'll be called to be the employee, maybe the husband, maybe the father, maybe the pastor. And that will put more responsibility on me and on my life. Let me say this real quick, and we'll move on to some of the people in here who are maybe a little bit older. And you're thinking, Matt, this all sounds great. God's call, God's plan for my life. This is wonderful, but I'm old. <laughs> If God was going to do something with me, he, he would have done it already, you know, or, or maybe he was doing something for me at one point in time, but, but I don't serve much functional purpose now. You might believe that, but that's not what we see in the Bible. Think of Sarah. Think of people like, like Simeon and Anna. These are people, King Solomon, these are people who later in life are still fulfilling God's call in their life. They're still serving a functional purpose. Look out in our culture. Clint Eastwood is still in movies, okay? <laughs> Larry King got kicked out of C He got fired from CNN a couple years ago, and guess what? He decided to keep working. He now does a talk show on the internet, on YouTube. He has millions of views every single week. The two best coaches in football are not 
39-year-old Cliff Kingsbury and whatever that guy from the L.A. Rams is who's like 31. You know who the two best guys are? Nick Saban and Bill Belichick. One in college, one in the NFL. They're in their late 60s. Andre DeShield just won his first Tony Award at 73 years old. If you're not in the theater community, you don't know what that means, but that's okay. It's a big deal. What I'm saying is, is that don't think that just because you're old, you can't have a purpose, that you can't do something great with your life. The problem is ageism is the last acceptable prejudice in our culture. People look at me, the young, moderately attractive 20-year-old, and they say, you've got everything going for you, kid. You've got your youth. You've got uh, all the years. You've got all the momentum on your side. Maybe we should be giving you all the opportunities. But what I would say to those people is, I don't know. Look at some of those mature folk. <laughs> they have all the experience. They have all the wisdom. They have all the knowledge. Maybe the momentum is on their side for them to do something great in their lives. And for those of you who are hearing this and saying, okay, Matt, that's wonderful, but um, I think the next place that God is going to call me is call me home. I don't think I have that much longer left. Let me say this. If we can find it, because we might have lost it, it's okay. And I know I'm taking a lot of time. We're okay? All right. I'm a 20-year-old. You'll give me a chance, right? <laughs> look at the stoning of Stephen, the guy who we talked about earlier he, when he was killed. Look what he did. Here's what he said. He said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt out and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he died and Saul had approved of his killing. Think about that for a second. How did this man go out? He went out with Jesus. He did the same exact thing that Jesus did when he, he died. He looked up in the sky. Jesus said, I, see, I will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. Stephen says, I see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. What did Jesus say on the cross? Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen does the same thing. He says, God, don't hold this sin against them. If you're at the point where you feel like you might be coming towards the end, okay, go out with Jesus. Go out with him. If you even have just a few more years left on your life and you feel that way, okay, spend that time well. If you've been blessed with children or grandchildren or friends or church members, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about what he's done for your life and how he's impacted you. How he's impacted you. And if you're sitting there right now and you're saying, well, I feel like I'm about to come towards the end and I don't even know Jesus. Okay, you still got time. You, you're in a community right now. You can talk with people about who Jesus is. You can come closer to him here at Chapelwood. And just kind of this last point on this idea of as our, you know, as our lives go on, our, our, our calling changes is this. Remember, if Stephen hadn't have done what he did, if he wouldn't have received God's call and acted with purpose, would Saul have ever turned into Paul? No. Now, Stephen had to pay a really good price. He had to die. But ask yourself this question, too. Because we've been doing this, this raising a generation in faith idea. Imagine this. If Chapel with UMC, if, if a generation of Christians doesn't respond right now to what God is trying to do in their life, what does it mean for us going into the future? Just think about that for a second. 
Because Stephen making the sacrifices that he made, by Stephen saying that I'm going to let the story of Jesus be my story, he allowed Saul to have an encounter with Jesus, and that's what turned Saul into Paul. Okay, last point, and we're going to be really quick. I promise. No promises. Um, what are we called to? I told you in the beginning, I can't tell all of you what you're supposed to do with your lives because I'm not you and I'm not God. But I do know this. We're called to at least one thing. We're called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are called to be faithful to what he's trying to do in our lives. Let me kind of give you another illustration. When I was in high school, I played football. Did anyone else in here in high school play football? Raise your hands high. Act like you're proud of it, you know. Okay. You know you are. Um, and we always said this motto. It was kind of weird, but we would always say, you know, trust the process. So if you're tired and you're sore from workouts, trust the process, right? Uh, when you're in the classroom and you're trying to make sure that your grades are good, trust the process. Keep going expecting that something good will happen. Be faithful to the system, and the system will be faithful back to you. Surround yourself in a community of people that share a shared vision and try to make something great happen within that community. The same idea applies here at Chapelwood. Let me, let me say this, football-wise, I knew, we knew, that we, if we were going to win or lose the game, or how we would play at least, based on the week of practice we had had leading up to Friday. If we hadn't had a good week of practice, we usually didn't play well in the game. If we had a great week of practice, we usually played very well in the game, and we usually won. Church is the same way. Give yourself momentum coming into Sunday morning. If you're praying, if you're reading your Bible, if you're listening to God and, and trying to figure out what he's, what he's trying to do, when you come on Sunday, something you have to trust and be faithful that something good will happen that you will get something out of the experience so if you're sitting here right now and you're saying i come to church every sunday and i don't feel like i have anything to, to get out of the experience invest invest throughout the week and then see what happens on sunday because i promise you the work that you put in from monday through saturday when you get here on sunday the lord will speak to you and let me just confess this and then we'll be done um I, I have not had a Simba or a Saul type of experience, right? Um, the reason I'm here is not because I was asleep in my dorm room one night and then an angel of the Lord appeared to me and said, Matt, go forth to Lake Jackson and preach the gospel. That's not what happened. You know how I came here? I came here because my home pastor said you should apply for this internship. I did. I got a call from Elizabeth Duffin, who's in charge of this internship, and she said, uh, we're going to place you in Lake Jackson with a guy named Peter Camerano. Uh, best of luck. Have a great summer. And that's how it happened. <laughs> we're going to be called differently. It's not all going to be the same. Some of us might get to have that really crazy experience where we, we have this divine intervention that speaks into our lives, but some of us, it's just going to be, we're going to be called in through a community, like Chapelwood. I've seen people who've become Christians by being in a relationship with somebody or a friendship with somebody who was a Christian. Stephen didn't have the same kind of experience that, that Saul had. They just said, hey, Stephen, can you leave this ministry because we trust in what you're going to do. Are you going to be faithful to God, though, when you do receive the call? There will be consequences for, to, for choosing to do what God's trying to do in your life. Now, I don't think that you're going to be nailed on a cross. I doubt you'll be stoned to death. I hope you don't get your head chopped off. 
But there will be consequences. You'll have to invest. You'll have to, in some instances, restrain yourself. You'll have to try to step out away from the culture and you'll have to live a life for Jesus. But if you're faithful and if you trust what God is trying to do in your life, He'll lead you to where you need to be. Let's pray, God. God, I thank you for bringing us all here today. God, I thank you for the call that you've put in all of our lives and in the way that you're trying to move us. And Father, I just pray that as we go from this place that we learn to understand your your call and what you're trying to do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.